Support for the This American Life podcast is provided by Anheuser-Busch, introducing Budweiser American Ale with caramel malted barley and Cascade hops from the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at BudAmericanAle.com. And by Audible.com, where you can download best-selling audiobooks, magazines, and radio shows like this one to your iPod or MP3 player. Visit Audible.com slash ThisAmericanLife today to access over 10 years of our archives and much more. When holiday season began last November, Yvonne started getting it from all sides, friends, family. I think people look at at me sometimes because I live alone and think that I'm lonely. Like tomorrow is Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. and I had to really convince everybody that it's okay. I'm going to be home alone on Thanksgiving. Go to Virginia, go to auntie whomever, do do your thing and I'm going to be fine. Well, you know, yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm really going to be fine. Yvonne talked to researcher Allison McKim and our producer John Jeter. She's lived alone since her kids moved out 12 years ago and she says it took her five years before she came to actually enjoy it. I like the fact that it is self-indulgent. What I want to eat, whether I choose to talk to anybody on the phone, if I want the TV and the radio going at the same time, and I'm not looking at or listening to either one. I enjoy cooking, so cooking is not an issue per se, but I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to do anything. And so I I would want to cook when I want to, and I don't even want to compromise on it. Okay, so you do Wednesday and Thursday and I'll do, no, I'll do it when I feel like it. I want to do everything I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. It's like killing a water bug. I'm going to run from it if I'm here by myself. But if, like, you two are here, I was like, oh, no, I'll get it, I'll get it. Where's the spray? You know, and, you know, I can do that with other people, but I can just be the coward that I am when I'm, when I'm alone, you know? Right, and you don't have to save face, you know? Right, display, exactly, kind of. exactly. When she gets involved with men, they're perfectly fine, she says. But eventually, she always decides that she would enjoy being alone more. Though at first, she was scared to live alone. Scared that somebody was going to break in. Scared about how she was going to fill her time. That took some getting used to. And these days she's afraid what's going to happen to her when she gets older, which is something her daughter worries about too. Yeah, she's wor- she is worried that I am I'm going to be old, broke, possibly sick, um, and maybe unhappy that, that I've made this choice. Like the rest of them, they want to see me happy and they don't believe that I can be happy unless, you know, I have a companion. Every now and then, I, the thought occurs to me, what if they're right? It, 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 it does happen every now and then. What if they're right? You know, what if, if this is as good as it gets right now and then then I'm on the steady decline. I, you'll have to interview me in 20 years. <laughs> when I'm saying, why didn't you stop me then when I had a chance? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm good right now. What a day on our radio show. Home Alone. We have three stories today of people living alone. Act one is a story of detective work in the homes of those who live by themselves. 
Act 2 is about a teenager who ends up living all alone. Act 3 is about a woman who has to trick an armed man into doing the right thing. It's This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. Stay with us. Back one, a plot without a story. You may remember a couple years back in Chicago, in 1995, over 700 people died after a massive heat wave. And hundreds of them died alone, at home. Well, sociologist Eric Conenberg wrote a book about all this called Heat Wave. And he says people die alone like this all the time, all over the country. In fact, big cities have special personnel to deal with those deaths. Who travel, Eric says, in the secret society of those who live and die alone. In Los Angeles, the county has an entire department, 100 people, just to manage the bodies and belongings of the deceased. And we sent Eric to L.A. to watch what they do. Marianne lived alone, and she died that way, too. She was 79 years old when she called herself an ambulance and went into the hospital. Her life ended there two weeks later, after a full cardiac arrest. She didn't have a friend or relative at her side. In fact, the only person she'd even listed as an emergency contact was this woman, Sue who delivered drugs for her pharmacy. I was really surprised when they called me and said that my name was on there as the person to contact. I went, oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I didn't even know if she had a brother or, you know, had family. Sue last heard from Marianne on a phone call from the hospital. She left an urgent message, pleading with Sue to feed and look after her dogs, who were chained up outside the house. When she called, uh, she was just crying because... um, she said, if, I don't, you know, if somebody doesn't pick up the mail, they'll take her dogs away. You know, and, she just, and she said, you know, they're all I have. She goes, I, I promise I won't cheat you. you know, I'll pay you. And I go, I wasn't worried about that. You know, I just, it just broke my heart a little that you know, she would think that you know, that's all she had. That's, that's what she said. This is the hospital where Marianne died. It's been two weeks, and her body's still here. No one's planned a funeral or even picked up her things. The only personal property left at the hospital, according to their records, is a purse with glasses. This is Emily Issa. She's a deputy investigator for the Los Angeles County Public Administrator, which means she's sort of like a detective for people who die alone. Emily combs through the remains of people's lives, trying to figure out what they've left behind and who should get it, searching for next of kin. Emily and her colleagues get 3,000 cases each year. Hi, I'm here to see Carla Moreno in patient services to pick up some property for a decedent. In this case, Marianne was single, with no known siblings or children. But she owned her house, she had a bank account, and who knows what other valuables in her home. Now someone stands to inherit it, and it's Emily's job to find out who. She's looking for someone who knew Marianne to lead her to a relative. There's also the question of who's going to bury her. Before Emily's finished, she wants to resolve that too. We start our search at the patient services office. There's a nun working there, and at first we think she might know something helpful, because when she sees Marianne's name on the case file, her face lights up. Oh, I know her. <laughs> yes. How well did you know her? I just met her a couple of times and was able to visit her. Yeah. Just when she was here. So, anyway, so let's just have you... Did you um, mention anything about family to you? No. Did she ever... The nun hands Emily a big plastic bag. Inside is everything Marianne brought with her to the hospital, and Emily starts combing through it, looking for clues. There's a fluffy blue robe, 
a small black purse. There's some medication, some baby powder, just some glasses. Typical things you'd find in a female purse. These are coupons. Here's the ads that she got the coupons from. None of this is of much use to Emily. She needs contact information, an address book, a cell phone with some names on the speed dial. There's nothing like that in the purse. She finds a notebook, and she flips through it in search of a personal note, maybe a list of last wishes. But every page is blank. What she does get is a set of keys to Marianne's house, and Emily tells me that the best-case scenario is that once we get there, we'll find a will or some instructions. That only happens rarely, and in her line of work, it's like hitting the jackpot. I've been out to a case where I walked in, and on the nightstand next to the bed, it said, in case of emergency, and I opened the envelope, and it had listed everything that I would want it to know, and I'm like, wow, it's five minutes, and I'm done. Marianne's case isn't that easy. When we get to her house, the two dogs are still chained up in the yard, so Emily calls animal control to take them away. The outside of Marianne's house is a mess. The wood panels are rotting. There's powdery gray dirt where grass should be. An old Volkswagen minibus with flat tires sits in the dusty driveway. The inside's even worse. It's dark and dusty, cluttered with stacks of video cassettes, empty juice cans, boxes from the home shopping network, many never even opened. I'm putting on my gloves so that we can start looking through the house. Emily, who seems completely unfazed by all this, declares it mildly pack rat. I mean, this is, um, seems really pack rat to me. There's not an inch of... You can walk on the ground. You can still see the ground. We see plenty of cases where you can't even walk on the ground. There's no floor because it's packed with stuff where you're climbing over. Emily is so used to places like this that she never goes on a search without gloves and tennis shoes. Not to mention a mask in case the person died at home and wasn't found for a while. Usually she has to dig around. Emily doesn't just open drawers and medicine cabinets. If she has to, she climbs to the attic. She breaks down locked doors. She once found someone's business records in a refrigerator. Okay, so let me start poking around here. Emily's searching through Marianne's living room. You can tell she's basically condensed her life into this one area. There's an unmade makeshift daybed in front of the dusty television. So right now I'm just lifting up all of the different layers of the bed, the the padding and, and blankets that are here. You'd be surprised how many times we actually find people that hide money and things under their bed. But there's nothing under there, just stacks of egg crates and musty blankets. Oh, back here, this is a table and chairs. There's an entire dining room set hidden under the clutter. Emily seizes on a stack of mail and canceled checks and starts rifling through it, but she doesn't find what she's looking for. No business card from an attorney, no photos of friends or relatives, not even a personal check, just payments to AARP, Ladies Home Journal, TV Guide. In fact, there's not a single sign that there was another person in Marianne's life, and I find that much stranger than the mess. Is this unusual? I mean, we've now been here for um, maybe 45 minutes, and we've not sound of found a single personal item. Not at all. It's not, not unusual? Not at all. It's hard to describe, but there is a common thread that runs through a lot of our cases where it's just like this. People surrounding their, themselves with things things rather than people but she's surrounded herself she almost built herself into like a little cave here behind all of her stuff and you can tell that this is where she spent most of her time emily's just looking for contact information 
not to piece together someone's life story. But sometimes she gets those stories anyway. She tells me about one case that she can't stop thinking about. A woman's husband died in World War II. She survived another 60 years, but her personal correspondence was a record of how she'd tried to avoid moving on. I, I found the letters from the military telling her that his plane went down and that they couldn't find him. I found the letter that said, we found his plane now and he's still missing. And then I found the final letter that said, we found your husband's body. And she stopped living, never remarried. They never had children. I mean, she just was, it was like a time warp, you know, that she just completely cut off the rest of the world. It's remarkable how little we find out about Marianne. We learn that her mother once lived with her at this address. There's lots of mail to her. Her father married four times. Her mom was a third marriage. She was into herbal medicine and natural remedies. She'd microchipped the dogs. Emily tells me she doesn't want to make a personal connection with the people she's investigating. She doesn't usually try to figure them out because there are just so many of them, it'd be hard to take. But I have to ask. Do you, do you ever wonder who she thought would clean this up? No. It's never even crossed my mind to think of. Most of the time you see these people don't want anybody in here. People who knew them never knew that they had this part of their lives that existed. She must have known that someday she would die and, and someone would come in and find all these things. Maybe, maybe it's just um, part of her knowing that she has no one to leave it to. Where... Who cares about my mess? Because I don't have anyone to leave my stuff anyway, so I might as well leave a mess. After nearly two hours, the only thing we found that might help Emily find a relative is a 30-year-old Christmas card addressed to Marianne and her mother. It's from a family in Virginia, and they must be related, because in the card they ask for help with a family tree for the kids. Emily deposits it in the clear plastic bag she'll bring back to the office. Emily seals the front door and walks outside. A few neighbors are looking at us, curiously, and she asks them what they know about Marianne. Did you ever see her? Did she never, have family? More than 20 years, I had never seen... No visitors. No visitors. This is Luis, who owns the house next door, and he says Marianne was never all that friendly. She doesn't seem to be a very happy lady. Lonely. A lonely person is not a happy person. Because... Uh, <clears throat> She, she was very lonely most of the years. George, another neighbor, had a different take. He thought she was happy. Yeah, all the time she talked with us. She talked with my uh, my son, and every every day I come to from work about three thirty, four o'clock, and she some sometimes on the porch. And, hi, Mary. Hi, George. So George thinks Marianne was happy. Luis thinks unhappy. Emily tells me this probably says more about Luis and George and their personal feelings about people who are alone than Marianne. There's a stigma against living alone and an even stronger one against dying alone. I think one reason Emily is so well-suited for a job is that she believes most people live the way they want to live. She may be right, but I'm not so sure. When someone keeps to herself, there's no way to know whether she lived and died outside the reach of friends and family because she preferred it that way or because of things beyond her control. Good afternoon. My name is Emily Isa. I'm a deputy calling from the Los Angeles County... Back in her cubicle, Emily makes a bunch of phone calls. 
She tracks down the number of the man whose name was on the one clue she found in Marianne's house, the 30-year-old Christmas card. His name is Terry. He asked me not to use his last name. But when Emily gets him on the phone, there's a problem. He's got no idea who Marianne is. Terry tells Emily to call his ex-wife. She's the one who actually wrote the card. Moments later, Emily's talking to her. Ah, he's the one that gave me the phone number for you, and he said he had never heard of her. So you think that she was his aunt? I see. The ex-wife was partly right. Marianne was a relative of Terry's, but a distant one. Her mother was Terry's great aunt. But Terry never met Marianne, never even spoken to her, and he knew virtually nothing about her. We've been just kind of going back and forth on this, trying to figure out who is this person. You know, in the meantime, I went back to the genealogy records, and I found all these Christmas cards. And lo and behold, it was Marianne and her mother. Terry doesn't hesitate to admit that it was hard to feel emotional about Marianne's death. My only feeling towards this right now is I feel a responsibility to try to resolve her situation, you know, to, to tidy up her life, I guess. One month after Marianne died, Terry and his cousins were still deciding whether they wanted the county to settle the estate or handle it themselves. Emily told me that because Marianne's assets totaled more than $6,000, the public administrator would arrange for her to be buried in a local cemetery. But what if she didn't have $6,000? L.A. County would still take care of things. Honored guest, on this day, we are gathered here for the annual mass burial committing to this earthly resting place 1,918 brothers and sisters of humankind who passed away... When people die alone here without the money for burial, their bodies are cremated and their ashes are stored in individual boxes for four years. After that, if no one claims them, the ashes are removed from the boxes and buried together in a mass grave. The burial takes place once a year. This year's ceremony happened just a couple weeks ago. We desire to honor these lives and the deaths of our unclaimed and seemingly forgotten people. We're in the corner of a massive cemetery, right next to a construction site that's torn up the whole street. The service is heartfelt, but a little empty, too. Besides the chaplain, only ten people, all county employees, showed up for the service. One of them pointed out the tiny plaques that mark each year's gravesite. The remains of 1,900 people fill a hole that's 10 feet long, 8 feet wide, 8 feet deep. Look, look right over here. Half covered in, in dirt and sand, you've got 1984. And then three feet away is 1969. And there's 1966. And if we walk up this road, the numbers are going to keep dropping off and off and off and go decades back. And you think about right here in the span of just three feet are the remains of thousands of people. And from ten feet away, you would never know that these plaques are here. Right here, all these thousands of people who lived alone and died alone aren't alone anymore. Of course, being mourned is a kind of privilege when it only comes to people who are actually close to other people. Whether they lived alone by choice or by accident, Marianne and those 1,918 dead won't get that luxury. Eric Kleinenberg is a professor of sociology at NYU and is working on a book called Alone in America. 
Thea Chaloner did the reporting at Evergreen Cemetery in Los Angeles. In the end, Marianne's family said that they're going to step in and take care of everything after her death. They'd be responsible for burying her, or cremating her, and they'd clean out her house, where, a month after her death, there was still a working phone line and an answering machine. Coming up, so you're 15 and living by yourself in an apartment, and you need money. So you and a 12-year-old named Moochie go in on an investment scheme. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. What's well, This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, Home Alone. And we have in the second half of our show two adventure stories of things that happened to people who were home alone. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2. Boy Interrupted. Before we get to what Clevens Brown actually did once he was living completely on his own as a teenager, a couple words about how he ended up that way. Sarah Koenig talked to Clevens. When he was little, Clevens Brown moved all around New York with his mother to different apartments or homeless shelters. He says a few months was the longest they ever stayed anywhere. His mom would get in a fight with someone or have a bad experience in the neighborhood, and they were off. But all that changed when Clevens was 12. That's when they finally got a subsidized apartment in Brooklyn in a public housing complex known as the Pink Houses. Clevin says it was the first time he felt like maybe he could be a normal kid. He could invite friends over. He could decorate his own room. I was putting up posters of, like, Stone Cold Steve Austin in The Rock. And um, I also had posters of Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit um, decorating our refrigerator, <laughs> stuff like that, like. Stuff that we never really got to do because, you know, since we didn't really own the house, we can't really do that. But I just felt a sense of pride to, hey, to say, hey, this is my wall. I can put whatever I want on my wall because I own this wall, you know? Right. I'm like, wow, I never owned a wall before, you know? Clevin says he was happy in the pink houses. He liked school and he had a couple of good friends in the project. And then one day in the spring, when he had just turned 15 and was about to graduate from eighth grade, his mom got sick. We were just watching television. We were watching WB. That's basically what my mom and I do every night. We watch the WB or we watch UPN. And we were watching this one episode of The Fresh Prince. My mother and I have seen this episode a million times. And a joke came on. I forgot exactly what Will Smith said. But it was just one of those jokes that Will Smith said that we would always laugh at. And I just found myself that I was the only person laughing. Mm -hmm. And then my mother was just like staring at the television blankly. And I said, Mom, you didn't think that was funny this time? And then she just like remained quiet. And then she asked me to make her some tea, mm-hmm. which really, in my house with her, is really skeptical because my mother never makes me do anything for her. So when she asked me to make her tea, I felt something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So while I was making her the tea, um, I just heard her, I just heard like a, a boom sound, like she just hit the floor. Next thing you know, I walk into the room and then my mother is just like holding her stomach and she's, like, cl- closing her eyes and scrunching her teeth. She's, like, screaming and everything. Now, my first initial reaction is to call 911 and, like, run to the house phone. But then I realize that the house phone is disconnected. So I run downstairs and I find a payphone and then like, I call 911. The operator responded by saying, 911, what's your emergency? And it took me about 10 seconds to respond to her. I mean, I wanted to tell her that there was an emergency upstairs. But at the same time, I didn't want to speak up about that because I felt 
that if I spoke up about that, some way, somehow, child services would be involved. And that's really the last thing I wanted. Uh, why did you think that? I mean, because I felt that if my mother was going to the hospital, then I would basically be upstairs by myself. And I know pretty sure well that I might be taken away or something like that. Like, the law would not allow a minor to be in the house by themselves. Had you ever been in child services before? No. So you had no experience with that no system. It wasn't like, I'm not going back to the foster care <laughs> no. or something like that. I, I was in foster care, actually, oh, you were. before. But um, child services, I, I got so many myths about it. Like, it's just like the worst thing in the world. It's like, you don't ever want to be there. So I dialed 911, and the operator on the other line was saying hello three times. And I pretended to be someone else. And I said to the operator, um, hello, ma'am. There seems to be an emergency going on in apartment 8D and 1165 Stanley Avenue. Is that a character you had, like, done before? Older uh, guy? You want to know the, in- the inspiration for the voice? I do. Um, when I was younger, I was always fascinated at the fact that you can be sitting in a movie theater and there's always, like, this one voice that you always hear, This summer! Coming to a theater near you. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, somebody tell me who he is. And growing up, I always thought he was like this huge muscular dude. Like, just like really, really large man. And something like Paul Bunyan almost, you know? But so when you call 911, you're essentially pretending to be Paul Bunyan. <laughs> pretty much. So I guess you could say that I'm pretending to be Paul Bunyan. <laughs> Making an anonymous tip. The operator asked me, she was just asking me all these probing questions. I, I she think doesn't she, believe. She I believe. think she thought it was a prank phone call. So then she asked me again, is there anyone else inside the house with her? Oh, no, it's just this lady. So I just figured out to just call you guys and let you know. So I run back upstairs, and the situation with my mother is a little bit tenser. Like, she's not screaming at this point. She can actually speak to me. Um, she was like, you need to stop crying right now. Don't worry. Cause, oh, you, you know, were crying. I was crying. And then moments later, I'm hearing sirens, and I'm looking out the window. So I told her that the ambulance are here for you. Don't tell them that I'm here. And at at this point, I just ran into the closet. I was really panicking right now because I said to myself, here they come. Like, I can hear their footsteps, and, like, there's I'm hearing walkie-talkies and static. So I just closed the door in the closet. And then at that point, I was pretty much home alone, like, they were going. I'm looking out the window, watching them drive along and everything. And I'm just like, I actually pulled this off. Like, I don't believe that I did that. Clevens's mother had a serious stomach illness. Clevens says it was a cyst. But after that was taken care of, she ended up in the psychiatric ward. Clevens doesn't like to talk about it much, but his mom has a pretty long history of mental illness, depression, which accounts for all the moving. She'd been hospitalized for it before. This time, she'd be away for about five months, but Clevens had no way of knowing that or anything about her condition. She couldn't call. Their phone wasn't working. And so he really had no idea what had just happened or where they'd taken her. He barely slept that first night. The next morning, everything just seemed weird. I remember leaving the the, the apartment, and everything just looked new to me. In front of my project building, there's a sign that says, Hi, you're, you're stepping into Lewis H. Pink Houses. And that's a sign I see every single day, but that one day just looked new to me. Like, I felt older. Like, I just felt like there's no one here going to, there's no one that's going to do things for me from this moment on. I, I have to find out some way to do things on my own. So, so you didn't, um, 
So you didn't want any of your neighbors to know you were there? No. Because why? I felt that they would call someone, like mm-hmm. a child services representative or... Yeah. Because, like, I really didn't want to, like, go anywhere else. I felt like... Another thing that was really fearing me is that I felt like if I just got up and left, then maybe we would be evicted. But I also knew that I didn't have any money to pay rent. So either way, I was, like, sort of stuck. And then how do you... At what point do you run out of food? About... A little bit of half a month later. And there's th- and then there has been a point where, like, I have just haven't been eating for, like, days upon days. And only Were some- you hungry? Very hungry. So, like, what I would do is, like, during the summer, different schools would have breakfast and lunch every single day. So what I would do, I would just go to schools, like, any schools within the area, and just have breakfast and lunch there. And then there, there were some Saturdays and Sundays where I didn't eat anything at all. Or if I'm lucky, I would probably get, like, dinner from a friend of mine like Errol for example or my neighbor Marie but there were some Saturdays and Sundays that would pass by and I'm not eating anything at all wow how long were you without any money at all two months two months mm-hmm so were you literally like you did not have a dollar nothing how did you do anything you live in New York City <laughs> like how did you Get on the subway. Did you, did you never get on really the, got on the subway? Did you take the bus anywhere? No. So what did you do all day? I mean, I was basically just isolated to where I was at, just on my block. That's where I was just at every day. Didn't really have any desire to go anywhere, really. And what did you do at night? <laughs> I would just be outside, just hanging out, you know. And it's summer, and you know, there's no one that's going to tell me that you have to be home at a certain time. So I would just be out. I like I've spent my entire summer just like riding my bike. Really, it really it really was difficult for me to get to adjust to the fact that my mother's not here. There's no one for me to talk to. Where is she at at this very moment? Is she okay at this very moment? Is she thinking about me at this very moment? And at, at times I would even like listen to radio stations that my mother listened to, even though I totally hated them. They play um, old music, you know, mm-hmm. like from like way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Play? Sugar fly, honey bun, and like they played the Temptations and all this stuff. I, so while my mother was gone, I just listened to I just started listening to WBLS. Like that's the best way I could like really make the house lose its emptiness. So. I really had no money in the house and everything, and like, so Everell and I and a couple of our friends were walking in the street one day, and we found like this garbage bag that had like boxes of cigarettes inside there. So I have a stick, like a little twig, that I'm like just walking by, just dragging along the fence. So I see the garbage bag and I start poking it and like start poking the bag and everything. So then all these cigarettes, like I don't know where they came from, just fall out of the bag. Individual cigarettes or or, or packs? In, in packs. And then Everell and I made a Everell made a joke actually. He said, How many packs of cigarettes does it, does it take to kill one person? And then I just said I just said, maybe this is it right here. And then we go home and then I'm inside my house just like watching TV and I and I realized to myself because I, I remember on my way upstairs I saw people like smoking cigarettes and all that. And I'm saying to myself, People are wasting their money buying cigarettes. So I, I just had to go back and get them. And and so did you? Mm-hmm. As much as I could. I didn't grab every last one, but I grabbed as much as I can. And then what'd you do? 
um, I went to Marie and I asked her if um, she would like to buy some cigarettes. And she's like, what are you doing selling cigarettes for? I'm like, it's not like I'm selling drugs. I mean, these are cigarettes. I mean, if the store can sell it, why can't I? So she buys it. And she's like, how much do you want for them? I'm like, mm, $2. So she bought one box. Next thing you know, I have a whole line of people just knocking on my door, asking for cigarettes. And in that one night, I made about 100 bucks. Like any good businessman, Clevens invested some of that money into a new venture and made a profit of 150 bucks with the help of his friend Moochie. Moochie was about 12, but he was shrewd. And he convinced Clevens the way to make more money was to throw a party at his house and charge people $7 to come. Moochie arranged the whole thing, the boombox, the food, which his mom cooked, the cleanup and security detail, all Moochie's little friends. And it worked, and Clevens was getting by, mostly staying out of trouble. And then at about the two-month mark, he found a permanent solution to the food problem. There's this thing called an EBT card. EBT cards are food stamps. How did you find the card? Going through my mother's stuff. Where was it? It was inside her purse that she left. Oh, so she didn't even have her purse with her? No. Oh, my God. So basically, my mother had this card, and basically that's where all her food was coming from. Like, she would take this card, go to supermarkets... So I was always under the impression that the code, because there's a code, a four-digit number code, I was always under the impression that it was my mother's birthday, 9763. Mm-hmm. So I took the card to a supermarket, and I swiped the card in, and I have all this bunch of food and everything. What did, what did you pick out? I picked out tons of pop tarts, cereal, um, peanut butter and jelly, bread, and all that. And I just, like, throw it on the counter. And I swipe the card in, and then I type in 9763. But then um, the card said, invalid entry, read error. And um, before I figured out the access code, I would always, like, go down to the supermarket and just, like, run a test. I would, like, take one item and see if I could possibly pay for it by entering this access code. So I'm, like, trying to figure it out, and I'm just, like, scavenging through all of her stuff. And um, my mother has, like, this leather jacket that is a unisex jacket. And I always, always wanted to wear this jacket. I personally think the jacket looks better on me than it does on her. Mm-hmm. And I would take this jacket. I would pretend that I'm shaft. And I had these two cap guns, these two black toy cap guns that I had. So what I would do is, like, I would just go in front of the mirror and just, like, put the guns inside, the, inside my, my coat pocket and pull them out and just start shooting them, like... And I'm just, like, going through the rest of the pockets. So then I found an envelope that I was about to throw out. And I read it, and it was a a letter from the um, food stamps company reminding my mother that her access code is this, this, this. And to my surprise, I went down to a supermarket and purchased some food, and it was actually the correct number. Now, what the food stamps card does is that they give you um, cash and they give you food stamps. I had about... $200 in cash and $200 in food stamps. So I was really excited and grateful that this happened. All this time, his mom's close friend, a woman Clevens calls Aunt Elizabeth, one of the few adults he'd told about his situation, had been calling around to different hospitals trying to track down his mother. Eventually she did. Clevens found an old prescription of his mom's, and Aunt Elizabeth called the number, and there she was at Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn. Clevens rode his bike to go see her. It was pretty upsetting. There were some other people in there who were, who had some really serious mental issues in there, and like it really just made me feel uncomfortable. The, the people that she is in the ward with, those people are like talking to themselves or 
and I'm always asking myself, why is my mother even with these people? Like, right. she's really nothing like them, you know? Why is she considered to be one of them? I mean, my mother's pretty sane, but these guys are, like, the total opposite. Do you ask her that? No. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you know why now? Not really. Still trying to figure that out. By this time, the summer was almost over. And even though this whole thing had been hard on Clevens, still, in another way, he'd lived the 15-year-old's dream summer. Unlimited freedom, nothing to do but hang out with his friends. But now he had to start high school, all on his own. He was supposed to go to South Shore High School, which he knew nothing about, not even how to get there. He'd never even really been on the subway without his mom. That first day, he asked the train conductor directions to his school, as if the guy was his personal tour guide. He never made it. But on day two, once Clevens did get there, he was immediately miserable. The place was huge. He says it was like a jungle. And it was so easy to cut classes, which he did, sometimes to go visit his mom. His grades slipped. Most of all, he hated how people at his school saw him. I didn't want to walk into school being this panicky kid with problems, you know? That's not who I wanted to be. I just wanted to be a regular student. I mean, did did you feel like people would look at you and know, like, oh, that kid... You know, nobody's taken care of. Like, did you look different from other kids? Did you feel like you looked different? Were your clothes dirty or something? My clothes were dirty, actually. And um, I was really antisocial. Like, I didn't really mix with myself with other students and all that. And um, Because why? Like, I just didn't feel like, like, it just wasn't in me. Like, I felt like I didn't know what direction I was going in. I felt like... It's like, it's like you're being teased, you know, like you have something in front of your eyes, but you can't get off a hold of it. Like, I'm always able to see my mother and talk to her, but I don't know when she's going to come out. I don't know how long she's going to be there. And that really just, like, drove me insane. Like, I don't know what to do right now. And I never talked to anyone, um, never talked to my teachers. Like, there could be times where a teacher, I'm sitting in a class and a teacher would call my name, and I would just ignore them like they're not even there. Really? Like, don't talk to me like because do, were you feeling like self-conscious that people would find out yeah i was barely washing my clothes could you tell could people tell yeah did anyone ever say anything about it um my guidance counselor she just said like you know what's going on like i could i could obviously see something's wrong with you because that's that's really a sign of something going on wrong at home when people don't wash their clothes you know and how did, like, what was your response to that? Um, I was just like, are you, are you just attacking me? Like, is that what it is? Like, I didn't, I didn't see it until now. I didn't see it. I saw it as a way, oh, she's just attacking me. She's just, like, trying to judge and disrespect me. So I'm just going to leave her alone. Like, just forget about it. Forget you too, you know? So, so did you not go see her again? No, I didn't. And it was because she said that? Mm-hmm. And then one day, the hospital called Aunt Elizabeth and told her Clevens's mom was ready to come home. Prior to that day, the house was extremely messy, and my mother comes home. Were you worried? Yeah, I, was, I thought she was really going to freak out with, with, with the way the house looked. I actually, like, right before I opened the door, I'm like, Mom, I'm going to, I'm going to, you have to brace yourself for what you're about to see. It's like, there are just so many unholy things going on in this house right now that you do not want to look at. Wait, just d- describe how messy we're talking. So I could basically you could you if you open the door you had to it's like imagine you walking outside on a snowy day and you have to struggle with your ankles to get through the snow just just 
just substitute the snow with clothes and potato chip bags and I thought she was just gonna be really upset. I was I was I was like, Mom, I'm gonna take care of this. This is my mess, I'll take care of it, no need to get mad or anything. She didn't get upset. But I looked in her eyes and I felt like this is probably her way a small way of making up for the time she spent gone. So that's why she really, really wanted to clean. You know, I've left you alone for this long. This is the least I could possibly do for you, you know? So I came back just to check up on her. The house is completely spotless. Like, there's no evidence of my five months of garbage piling up in there. She just got rid of it all. Like, it's, the clothes were neatly packed up. The garbage is gone. The floor is mopped and swept. I'm like, what? Did she ever say anything directly about, like, the time you'd been alone? Did you guys ever have a conversation about it? <clears throat> yeah, she kept on apologizing, and I said, there's no need for you to apologize. I mean, you didn't intentionally say you want to leave me for five months, so it's not your fault, you know? Yeah. Was there any part of you that sort of, like, obviously you love your mom and you wanted her to come home, but did you worry that certain things would become harder if she came home, too? I felt that when she comes home, I felt like I'm just going to be in the same predicament again one day. Like, I don't know when, but I just knew and felt that it's going to happen again one day. Really? And I just felt like, you know, I just want to be more prepared the next time it happens. A few years later, it did happen again. His mom disappeared. Clevens was evicted. But this time, Clevens was 18, and he did handle it a lot better. Since then, Clevens has been living in a friend's apartment. He's working now and he's planning on going to college next year. Sarah Koenig is one of the producers of our show. Act three, the man who came to dinner. Well, we end our show today with the story of a mother who is home alone with her two small children when one of the scariest things that can happen actually happens. This was in the early 1980s. Jennifer Schaller was one of the two little children at the time, and she tells the story. There's a story that my mother doesn't like to tell because it brings back too many bad memories for her, but I love to hear her tell it. It captures her perfectly, how fierce she is. It also shows what was really going on when I was a kid, and I didn't even know it. We were living in Heightstown, New Jersey, in a one-bedroom apartment in a big courtyard building. It was fall. My brother Alan and I were home from school, playing outside. I was five or six, and Alan was a year younger. My mom, Ezra, picks up the story from here. I was in the house by myself, and then he knocks on the door, and I open it up, and he identifies himself as, as one of Raymond's friends or associates. Uh-huh as they call each other. Raymond is my father. He wasn't around much. My parents told me that it was because of his job as a salesman. I imagined he was a traveling salesman who pushed appliances. I found out later that he was a pusher, but his job had nothing to do with vacuums or dishwashers. When my mother and father first met, he was a legitimate jewelry salesman. Then he traveled to Peru for his father's funeral, and while he was there, his half-brother introduced him to the world of cocaine trafficking. The drugs were a constant source of tension between my father and mother, who begged him to stop selling. He promised he would, but never did. At the time the story takes place, Raymond had been gone for more than a week, and my mom didn't know where he was. 
The man at the door told my mother he had business to discuss with Raymond. He wasn't going to leave until they had settled the matter. And at that moment, both you and Alan, you know, run up behind him to see who it was that was at the door. And I really didn't know what to say to you guys. Uh, so he said that he was actually going to be staying with us for a while. Really? And you guys were satisfied with that. And, you know, oh, cool, you know, and you just take off and you start <laughs> playing, you know, with your cousins again. And so at that point, he comes inside the apartment and he shows me the gun. The gunman said he had to make a phone call. So my mother took him to the phone in the kitchen. She listened to his conversation. It became clear that he was on the phone with his boss in Florida. She overheard him report that Raymond was not around. He said my mom didn't know where my father was or how to get a hold of him. Then he turned to my mom and said his boss wanted to speak with her. Uh, the man from Florida never identified himself, never actually gave, gave his name. Mm -hmm. He just uh, proceeded to tell me that he was very disappointed with Raymond and that Raymond had disappeared. It had been like about four or five days already. Absolutely no communication with him. He had a kilo of coke on him, and it, was, it belonged to the man from Florida. Mm. So he was concerned about his merchandise and his money. So this is why that man wound up at our doorstep, you know, to help us smoke Raymond out. I hang up the phone with the guy from Florida after he had told me that he was going to kill my children and me if Raymond didn't show up. I hang up the phone with the guy and I tell him, I says, well, you know, I guess we might as well get comfortable because it looks like you're going to be here for a while because Raymond isn't going to show up anytime soon. When my mom tells the story today, there's a lot of bravado. But at the time, she was terrified, mainly for us. She wanted to keep me and my brother physically safe, but she didn't want this episode to scar us emotionally either. And so she made a decision. She would continue with the ruse as long as she needed to. She carried on normally, as if the gunman really was an old friend staying with us for a short time. That evening you guys came in, I made dinner for us, you know, and you and your brother just joked around, you know, because you thought he was a friend, you know, of your dad. So you guys were just, you know, being yourselves and joking around and stuff. And I put you guys to bed. And after I put you guys to bed, I went into the bathroom and I grabbed a towel and I bunched it up and put it on my face and I started screaming into it, you know, as quietly as I could. And then um, I started crying and then I thought to myself, okay, that's it. You know, this guy can't know that you're upset or that you're fearful because the moment he sees fear, he's going to think he's got control. So he's not going to get that control from me. But how does a single mother with two small kids gain control over a hired gunman? Moments after her tears in the bathroom, my mother saw an opportunity brought about by the television. I wash my face and I go back out into the living room and I sat down and at that time, it was probably about eight or nine o'clock, a movie started on TV and it was The Godfather. I know, The Godfather, can you believe it? I started, you know, conversing with a guy, and I told him, I says, yeah, you know, my, I have an uncle that's in the mafia. 
As I was telling him the story, his eyes got bigger, you know, and he gets up quietly and he goes over to the telephone and he calls the, the guy in Florida. He's explaining to him, you know, I'm not sure that we should be here in this place with this woman because she has connections. And he was very nervous. I could see that. And then he comes and he sits down. And I just kept talking like nothing, you know. And I saw that I had the upper hand at that moment, so I was going to just go with it. My mother's uncle actually wasn't in the mafia, but his family all believed he was because that's what he told them. He was actually hiding a girlfriend and later on another family from his wife. He was a polygamist and not a good fella. This lie struck a nerve with the hired gunman, who had settled in and slept nights on the sofa. My mother waited on him, bringing him things to eat and drink. You know, the next day you guys go to school, and uh, I spend the whole entire day with this guy in our in our apartment. What did you guys do? Just watch TV? Pretty much just watch TV, yeah. And, you know, it was like every hour or two hours, the man from Florida would call and try and intimidate me and harass me, asking me where Raymond was and threatening to, to kill us. And I said, well, I don't know what to tell you, man, but, you know, you do what you got to do. You know, if you feel that you got to kill us, then I guess, you know, I don't have any control over that. This is the point my mother says where her fear turned to rage. She was enraged at my dad for getting us into this mess, at her captor for his intrusion, and at the man on the other end of the phone for his constant threats. So she amped things up a notch. While watching an episode of Miami Vice, she casually mentioned a cousin who was a police detective. This, my mother said, made her captor seem even more nervous. Then she began working on an excuse to see my aunt and uncle who lived in the apartment next door. I had run out of milk, and uh, the guy was insisting that I couldn't go anywhere and that he had to watch me at all times. And I said, well, cool, that's fine, but, you know, we need milk for the kids. And I asked him, I said, you know, okay, you won't allow me to go to the store. Can I go right next door to uh, my, my aunt's house and just ask her for a container of milk? And he just thought about it and thought about it. And, you know, he waves his hand at me and says, go ahead, go ahead, but you better be fast. You know, come back and, and you better not be longer than five minutes. So I go next door and I tell my uncle what's going on. And my uncle right away grabs his rifle, one of his rifles, and he says, well, you know, I'm going over there and we're going to take care of this. And I said, well, no, I don't want you getting involved in this. I don't want anything to happen to you. So I, I said, can I use your phone? You know, let me call Tito real quick. Tito was an old family friend. He was working as a delivery man at the time. My mother didn't call the police for two reasons. She didn't want my father to go to jail. And she also feared that her children would be caught up in a violent mess. She called Tito to ask him to drop by so that our captor would know that we had people, that we were not alone. Things ended up working out better than she thought. The gunman mistakenly assumed that Tito was the police detective my mother mentioned earlier. I guess it was because of the clothing that he was wearing. He had on a dark navy blue t-shirt and dark navy blue um, pants. And, I, you know, he didn't have any type of insignia on his, on his clothing. And so 
Tito comes in and he sits down. I introduce him to to the guy from Florida, you know, and and Tito's, you know, hi, you know, I just thought I'd come by and see how my comadre is doing and find out how the kids are doing. I haven't talked to them in a while. So the guy kind of like slowly weans his way, you know, back towards the telephone in the kitchen. And he's on the phone again, you know, and I tell Tito, I says, Tito, you know, listen to what he's saying. And he was in a panic. He says, you know, I'm leaving. I am not staying. You do whatever the hell it is that you need to do, but I'm getting the hell out of here because her, now her cousin, who's the detective from New York City, is here. What the hell am I supposed to do now? The man on the other end of the phone somehow talked him into staying. And he did for three more days. With me and my brother coming and going to school and my mother waiting on him hand and foot. But by this point, the only person in the house who seemed afraid was the man with the gun. Which brings us to what might be my mother's greatest triumph. My brother and I never suspected any of this was going on. When I think back on this time, I remember going to kindergarten every day. I liked to hug my teacher. My favorite food was pizza, and I was the best speller in my class. I have no recollection of being held hostage by a gunman. Neither does my brother. As a child, I was never angry at my dad for running off with someone else's cocaine. And I don't think this memory is repressed. I think my mother wanted more than anything for my brother and me to believe that our household was like any other. And she succeeded. I only learned what happened that week years later when I was grown. I didn't show or demonstrate any anxiety. Whenever you guys were around, I was my normal self with you. I would play with you. I would feed you guys. I would read a book to you, you know, before you went to bed. And I went about business normally, you know, our daily lives as as I normally would. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much it. That's maybe why you don't remember it, you know, ever happening. Mm -hmm. On our fourth day as hostages, my father showed up with the money and an explanation which seemed to placate the man who took us hostage, but not my mother. This ordeal stamped out any hope she'd had of reconciling with my dad. The man with the gun was about to leave when my mother went into the backyard. I had stepped outside into the backyard. I mean, after so many days of being stuck inside the house, I needed fresh air, so I stepped outside. And so, you know, the man steps outside and he says to me, You know, senora, I am so sorry. I hope that you are not going to hold this against me and tell your cousins or your uncle, you know, to come after me because I really didn't want to be a part of this. You know, I was forced into this situation. And, ma'am, I really, really, really am sorry about this whole thing. And and he grabs my hand, and I thought he was going to shake my hand. He grabs my hand, and he kissed it. That was when I thought, damn, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) That was the moment, truthfully. That was it. That was when I thought, damn. You know, and to this day, you know, I think about it. You know, my palms get all sweaty. I was really in the zone. Like, I had my control back. I had taken it back. And it felt great. It really did. It felt really good. My father went on selling drugs for years. When I was 11, he went to prison. But my mother says this experience changed her. Nothing rattles her even now, she says. 
Not long ago, a client, my mom's an insurance agent, became irate with her and from across the desk in her office threatened her with bodily harm. My mom, all of five foot two, says she stood up, stepped out from behind her desk and said calmly to the man, we'll have at it. The man walked out of the office in a huff and never bothered her again. Jennifer Schaller lives in New Mexico. I'm tough with my stuff. Too tough for Mr. Big Stuff. Our program was produced today by John Jeter and our senior producer, Julie Snyder, with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Felt, Sarah Cannon, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Production help from Seth Lind and Bruce Wallace. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Thanks today to Alex Kotlowitz, Jared Fogel, Eric Kamaroff of Community of Unity, Elna Baker, Simon Rich, and Paula McLean. Yvonne, the woman at the top of our program today, was originally interviewed for Eric Kleinenberg's forthcoming book. That research is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Our website, where you can get our free weekly podcast, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by the Saab 93 Turbo, with an EPA-estimated 29 miles per gallon on the highway. This race the balance between efficiency and performance. Learn more about the Saab 93 Turbo at SaabUSA.com. And by Anheuser-Busch, brewers of Budweiser American Ale, crafted with caramel malted barley at Cascade Hops from the Pacific Northwest. More information at BudAmericanAle.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who, this is so weird, he kept pledging over and over to public radio, hoping that he was going to win a big stuffed doll until he spent all his savings. Why didn't you stop me then when I had a chance? I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Hope there's someone who'll take care of me When I die, will I go? Hope there's someone who'll set my heart free Nice to hold when I'm tired There's a ghost on the PRI Public Radio International